a stellar mix of public affairs, music, comedy, and Spanish language programming. Created and produced right here at KPFT. Don't miss a second on HD2. Mouse on over to kpft.org or on TuneIn Radio. KPFT, Houston. Tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. Thank you for tuning into Latino Politics and News. I'm Tony Diaz. We are recording remotely for broadcast on Tuesday, May 26, 2020. Today, you're going to find out about our Pablo Neruda Challenge. And can you guess which city has more Latino City Council representatives, Houston or Dallas? Houston does have a slightly higher percentage of Latino population. You will get all these answers and more on today's episode. We're going to pose our Pablo Neruda Challenge to congressional candidates for Battleground Texas District 22. At the top of the program today, Sriko Carney, Democrat candidate for the Post, joins us. You're going to find out if he accepts or declines this opportunity to celebrate in Spanish one of the greatest poets to ever live. Will his Republican opponents accept? Or maybe they don't like Pablo Neruda. Of course, the race for Texas's 22nd congressional seat has made national news as a major battleground seat. We'll find out how Sri Kulkarni plans to engage Latinos. On the second half of the show, Dallas City Councilman Omar Narvaez joins us. So now you know Dallas has at the very least tied Houston for the number of Latino City Council representatives since Houston has only one. Does Dallas have even more? Stay tuned. We'll also talk to Omar about a powerful letter he wrote to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who interceded on behalf of an Anglo nail salon owner who broke stay-at-home orders. However, Paxton has not interceded for Latina salon owners jailed in Laredo. He also has ties to Houston, so Gente and Spring Branch get ready to represent. In the news, Kudos to Harris County Judge Lina Hidalgo for spearheading increased COVID-19 relief for Harris County residents. Commissioner's Court voted along party lines to pass the policy. Three Democrats supported it. The two sitting Republicans opposed it. This plan will also include helping undocumented families. This should remind you of our past broadcast where journalist Alfredo Corchado shared insights about his essay, a former farm worker on American hypocrisy, which appeared in the New York Times. He writes that it is wrong to exploit the labor of the undocumented and call them essential workers in national policies because their backbreaking work is vital to maintaining our food supply chain and then scapegoat them for everything that's wrong in the nation and deprive them from the relief that they're going to need to survive so they can keep working their essential jobs. Local policies such as that passed by Harris County Commissioner's Courts are vital to undo the hypocritical policies at the national level. In other news, Joe Biden has started to more aggressively court the Latino vote. He hired the granddaughter of Cesar Chavez, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, as an advisor on his campaign. This is a good step, but as we discussed on our premier program, a truly profound engagement would consist of a Latino vice presidential pick announcing which Latino cabinet members he will support, as well as more Latino surrogates to represent him ASAP. Also, the mission of Latino politics and news is for every candidate to consider our community's concerns for every issue on their platform. What does that mean? 
That's a huge question that's been overlooked for a long time. That's why every single one of our broadcasts sheds light on more of the many facets of the Latino experience. So let's get to it. We are in Pledge Drive. There are no regular shows about our art, culture, or politics on commercial television or radio. KPFT hosts a monopoly on community cultural capital. We answer only to our community. Please budget a donation to KPFT and make it in support of Latino politics and news today, right now. Call 713-526-5738 or visit kpft.org. We have a monetary goal, a goal for new members, and a goal for online donations. We thank you in advance for helping us meet and shatter those goals. Thanks to our crew for donating their cultural capital to the show. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixed the show remotely, Claudia Sorel Alfonso, Jacinda Comer, Lori Flores, Stefano Cavasa, Al Castillo. I'm happy to join you every Tuesday from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. for Latino politics and news here on 90.1 FM KPFT. That's followed by Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say at 6 p.m. I also get to see you on the political talk show, What's Your Point, on Fox 26 Houston, Sundays at 7 a.m. This is Tony Diaz with Latino politics and news. This is Pablo. I'm Chicano, vegan, but I'm still too young to vote, so I love listening to Latino politics and news to get informed about my culture and issues shaping the world I will eventually inherit. Now, you probably suspect that I don't get a lot of this information in my school. I'm not taught any of this, so shows like Latino politics and news on stations like KPFT are vital for me to educate myself. Please donate now by calling 713-526-5738 or visit www.kpft.org and donate online to support Latino politics news with Tony Diaz. Ensure that the station is still here when I'm old enough to vote to have my own show. Viva KPFT. Thank you for tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz, and we're happy to focus on a really important seat that's up for grabs here in Texas. It's made national news, but it does represent the shifting of demographics in America. We're joined on the air through remote recording with Sri Kulkarni. He is a foreign service officer who represented America abroad under President Bush and Obama. When President Trump divided Americans following the white supremacist march in Charlottesville, Sri decided to come home to Texas 22 and run for Congress to bring people together in 2018. Campaigning in 16 languages across a quickly diversifying district, Sri expanded the electorate, grew the immigrant vote, and came within 14,000 votes of defeating Congressman Pete Olson, who is retiring this time around. Sri was raised by an immigrant father and a mother who traces her Texas roots back to Sam Houston. Sri left the University of Texas to care for his father when he was diagnosed with leukemia. After his father's medical bills brought his family to the brink of bankruptcy, Sri became an advocate for quality, affordable health care. If elected, Sri will be the first Asian American congressman from Texas. In Congress, he'll seek common ground, find solutions, and make sure every Texan has a voice in Congress. The election is November 3rd. He will be facing the winner of a Republican runoff July 14th between Wall and Nels. And there's also a libertarian in the race, Joseph LeBlanc. But we're very happy to welcome him to the Airwaves 3. Thanks for calling in. Tell folks where you're at right now as far as the, the COVID-19 shutdown. First of all, thank you so much for having me out, Antonio. I'm, I'm so excited that you are back on the air, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to all your listeners. I want to make one update to something you said there. We, we had been campaigning in 15 languages last time. Now we're campaigning in 21 different languages. So we're trying to make sure that we reach out to every single community that's out here in our district uh, because Texas is the most diverse state in the country, but we have to be the most inclusive. Now, in terms of uh, COVID-19, as you said, we... 
Obviously, we can't do face-to-face rallies anymore. We can't knock on doors. But what we can do is we can reach out to the community in every way we can. So there's a lot of misinformation being spread out there, as many of you have seen on the Internet. A lot of people are confused about who to listen to. And so we have tried to provide as much good information as possible, especially through social media. So if you're on Facebook, you can find us at Shree for Congress 2020. And you can go there and see our town halls on things like the virus itself, on mental health, uh, on small business loans, on distance learning, on gun violence, uh, on the census. And we're trying to continue to provide whatever information we can to people. At the same time, we're encouraging uh, people to serve and help out in their community when people have needs. So blood drives, if you can donate blood, um, food drive, uh, we've already We've already gone to the Houston Food Bank, and we're trying to find other ways to provide food to people who need it in this time. And, of course, uh, drives for personal protective equipment, masks and gloves, and making sure that every single person is wearing masks and is trying to be as safe as possible when they go out in public because we see that the number of cases is still rising, and we all have to do our part to contain this disease. The last thing that we've been doing, which is pretty unique in the country, is that we have been doing wellness checks on our entire community, or I should say communities, because those 21 languages that we're campaigning in, we are actually calling people in those 21 languages to make sure all of our immigrant communities are also being taken care of and checked on just the way that our non-immigrants are. You mentioned all these different languages. Folks who are here in Texas, especially Houston Harris County, Fort Bend County, we know that. But folks who are listening from across the country might not realize just how diverse Texas is. Before we get into some of the policy issues, why don't you break down some of those different languages and some of those unique communities that'll be the folks that you represent? A lot of people know that uh, Spanish is the second language of Texas. And obviously, the United States is one of the largest Spanish-speaking countries in the world. But you might not know that the third most commonly spoken language here is Vietnamese, or that uh, Texas is the largest Muslim state in the entire country. Um, in fact, in, in Fort Bend, uh, we are campaigning in Spanish as well as Chinese, Vietnamese, uh, Hindi, Urdu, Gujarati, Telugu, Malayalam, many languages of India, Arabic, Turkish, Igbo, Yoruba, which are languages of Nigeria. Um, we are trying to get out into every single one of these communities because what we found is that for immigrants across the board, it's very easy to demonize us. All the things that you heard out of the, the Trump administration, you know, whether it's saying that a Latino couldn't be a fair judge, uh, whether it's calling uh, climate change a Chinese hoax, whether it's saying we want to ban all Muslims, over a billion people from this country, uh, or whether it's uh, saying that there are very fine people at a Nazi rally um, in Charlottesville. Um, all of those things uh, are because... If you don't expect these people to vote, then you have no downside. You can use that to your advantage. But what we've done is taken that disadvantage and turned it into a strength. So in other campaigns, if you speak English with an accent, uh, that's that's a weakness. In our campaign, it's a strength because it means you can talk to more of these people. And that's what we've seen happen is uh, tens of thousands of immigrants who weren't voting before coming out to vote in these elections. And that's what's changing the face of Texas and our country. That's exciting. That's the Texas that I believe in. Recently, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos removed DACA recipients from COVID-19 education relief. We're seeing the effects of that right now where students who are eligible for Pell Grants are getting support through that in Texas, but DACA students are not. Do you agree or disagree with that option that she took? Uh, Like on many issues, Betsy DeVos is just plain wrong about this. I grew up in a neighborhood which was somewhat lower income and my my school in my area wasn't the best. I had to bus across town to get a better education. We know that educational opportunities are not equal across our society. And when we're talking about uh, kids who've grown up here in the United States, kids who are on the DACA program, kids who are part of our society. My question to Betsy DeVos and these other folks who oppose this is, what, what is the alternative? What do you want to do to the, these kids who are uh, trying to be productive members of society right here? Um, under, under a Republican governor, um, Texas, like my, my university, University of Texas, offers in-state college tuition to DACA recipients because all of us, Democrats and Republicans, know that 
these kids are just part of our society. Uh, they, they, they are just as much American as any of us, and they understand the value that these dreamers provide to our state and to our country. So, you know, for these hardworking young men and women uh, who came here as, as infants and children, they've already had to pass a rigorous set of standards even to be, uh, to be vetted um, for the program. So they d deserve to be included in this program. And I, I don't see how it makes any sense whatsoever to discriminate against uh, these, these young men and women uh, who are trying to create a better life for themselves and contribute to American society. We, we deserve, they deserve to be part of the program and they deserve a Clean Dream Act finally being passed by Congress. Most surveys indicated that most folks, including Republicans, agreed that DACA recipients should be supported in different ways. You mentioned in-state tuition in Texas. That's one way. What do you think is behind this attack on DACA recipients from the Betsy DeVos team? You, you highlighted some really important points here. There is a consensus across the political spectrum, especially among average people, and especially when you talk about it in terms of the human costs and the human stories. Um, if you, you go back to 1980, in, right here in Houston, and you see uh, George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan debating right here about um, education, and someone asked them, do you think that these um, undocumented kids should be able to go to a public school? Both of them said, absolutely, absolutely, yes. And their answers, I encourage people to go back and watch that clip. Their answers would put them in the Democratic Party today. Um, the, the Republican politicians who are trying to um, divide us up right now uh, over this issue, they aren't doing it in the interest of uh, our society. They're not actually aligning with the, the views of a majority of people who, when you ask them about someone in their community, their neighbor, their kids' classmates, for example, how they feel, what they're trying to do is they're trying to dehumanize people. They are trying to turn them into an abstract concept that can be scapegoated um, because that's an easy way to deflect from real problems that we have. And we've seen this pattern again and again throughout history. When, when there are serious crises, we can either try to rise to the challenge and solve those problems, or you can find the most vulnerable group uh, to treat as less than human. And that, that, that's, I think, what's happening here is that um, when, when you uh, talk about DACA students as if they're, they're not one of us, they're something else, um, then it's easy to avoid the problems. And that, that's just not productive for any of us. So I say we need to address our problems head on, but we need to do it together as a society, walking arm in arm and saying that we are going to treat every human being like a human being and everybody who's a member of our society like they are a member of society because they are. That's profound. I'm going to resist diving further into that. We could probably do a whole series of shows just on that. But I do want to stay on the issue of education. That is a major issue for Latinos. What would you do to empower Hispanic-serving institutions to better serve Latino communities? I mean, we could talk about education all day long. You know, everybody in my family has involved in education in some form or fashion, whether in the nonprofit world or through teaching. Um, and, you know, there's, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, there's definitely disparities in primary education and high schools from area to area, um, the, the need for, for more resources for, for kids who come from a bilingual background. I, I would say, especially in terms of higher education, what we've been talking about here, currently any school uh, with at least 25% enrollment can apply to be federally recognized as a Hispanic serving institution in the country, which can qualify them for federal grants. But the problem is that we need more federal guidance on the investment in programs that actually serve the Hispanic community in some of these institutions. And we know that the needs of first-generation immigrants, first-generation Latino college students differ from others. And we have best practices that we should be promoting in all of these, quote-unquote, Hispanic-serving institutions. Uh, for example, um, we, we know that we need to have more diverse faculty at these institutions. We need to see more Latino, Hispanic faculty and staff members so that students have mentors that they can go to uh, who understand their own cultural background and understand some of the sensitivities that, honestly, not having a diverse staff, it, it blinds you to those things. Uh, we also should have more resources available 
uh, to students, um, especially bilingual resources, because those students need a support system at these institutions um, and, you know, peer mentoring programs, for example. What we found is that um, students who come to a, a university from diverse cultural backgrounds, it's usually not the uh, academic ability that's the biggest differentiator. It's the it's the support structure, the network around, and it's why we find a lot of times people of color and minority students dropping out at higher rates uh, when they're trying to go to schools that, that are attempting to diversify. And so if we want to support them, we need to have more of these peer mentoring programs. We need to have uh, resource centers which can help them navigate for both college and preparation for life after they graduate from university or higher education. Those are some great insights. And what I would add to for our listeners to look up is that even just recently, uh, Latino faculty and staff did a report at the University of Texas at Austin that there were disparities between the number of Latinos in leading positions as well as compensation and that they needed more representation. Again, all topic for another series of shows. So I'm going to resist leaning into that and take it now to arts and cultures. You know, Texas District 22 doesn't have a lot of spaces for Latino art, Mexican American history, or culture. What would you do as a congressman to cultivate Latina art and culture in that part of Texas. Well, well, Tony, I would like to first of all commend you for the work that you did um, leading to promote Mexican American studies. I know um, you you worked on that uh, back in in Arizona, right, um, with uh, Nuestra Palabra. So I I do appreciate that. And I'll have to say, from my own education growing up, I actually I come from a family. My dad was a writer, and so we had a lot of uh, literature um, in my house. You know, we have obviously had like. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, I, I used to go compete in, in competitions across the state. There's a, there's a great competition, I think, at the University of North Texas, uh, where um, students could come and perform uh, Spanish poetry, for example. I still remember this Pablo Neruda poem that I, I did back when I was in high school. And uh, true story, um, I, I created a mural, a Diego Rivera mural of uh, a man at the crossroads when I was in high school, but I never got to see it until... Just last year, when I went to Mexico City and I finally saw it for the first time uh, there in, in the museum, because it was it was originally planned to be uh, put up in New York and then it was destroyed and recreated there in, in Mexico. But we, we need to have spaces uh, for these things. We need to encourage people uh, to not only study uh, Latino art, uh, Mexican-American art and history and culture, but uh, to also invest in the arts. And I think that's something across the board in this administration that's been really disappointing is that that appreciation for the arts and what that adds to our culture and our community. You know, uh, I, I wear a, a wristband on my left wrist every day. It's a, a quote by John F. Kennedy. Um, and the reason I wear this is not because I think John F. Kennedy was a perfect man at all, but because he inspired us to do greater things, you know, in technology, going to the moon, uh, Peace Corps, but also in the arts. And I think, um, if, if, we, if we lose that value in what the arts, especially the art of our diverse communities and cultures brings to us, then we lose part of our humanity and part of our, our society. I think, I think it was Winston Churchill, when they asked him if, if he'd be willing to cut funding for the arts uh, to devote more uh, to the war effort, he said, if we do that, then what are we fighting for? I think I think that's the the right attitude, and I appreciate everybody who has has gone through the effort to both preserve and expand arts. I think we we should be expanding. We should be investing in public spaces which promote uh, Latino and Mexican American art history and culture. And that's what I'll do as a member of Congress. Well, that's exciting. You know what? You've inspired me to put you on the spot. So once this COVID nineteen lockdown is over, and we can do open events, I'm going to ask you. If you would be open to coming to an event and declamar Pablo Neruda poesia in person, we would also invite the Republican candidate, just to be fair. But will you accept our invitation? Por supuesto. I love it. We'll try and set that up once we can. Talking about the elections, now that you are getting ready to gear up the campaign, although obviously you've been working all along, but once people can go outdoors, et cetera, 
how do you plan to do outreach to Latino voters in the Latino community besides being on our show, which we appreciate? Well, obviously, this is the greatest forum, so I encourage everybody to continue listening week after week. Tony, I appreciate the service you do to the community. But if if people do want to get more involved, that it is no exaggeration to say this is the most important election of our lifetimes. I mean, you don't have to even look at the news every day to see you know tens of thousands who have already perished in this pandemic. Over 30 million unemployed. People have to get involved. Um, even if you thought you weren't political before, politics is your schools, it's your roads, uh, it's the air that you breathe and the water that you drink and the hospitals that are being filled up right now. So I hope everybody gets involved. The way that we have gone about engaging with these diverse communities is that we don't treat them as a monolith. And so when people talk about the Asian community, uh, there's not one Asian community. There's so many Asian communities. And so we have volunteers in all of these groups uh, who speak these languages, who show up at mosques and temples and at you know Chinese community centers. And I'm out there uh, with them in all these places talking to, but especially listening to them. The same thing is true about our Latino community. A lot of times people say, you know, why is it that the Latino community doesn't come out to vote? in Texas or like District 22, where we have 25% uh, Latinos here. And the, the truth is we spent millions of dollars of uh, research over several years to find out the way to get people to vote is to talk to them. And we have to be out there talking to all these communities, but we have to recognize that there are differences. We have vibrant uh, Colombian and Venezuelan communities who have very different backgrounds depending on which country they come from, or an Argentinian community. We have uh, Puerto Ricans here who have been Americans their whole life, but sometimes don't get treated like it uh, here in Texas. Uh, we have uh, Salvadorians, you know, or Guatemalans or Hondurans who have fled countries that are being torn apart by violence right now. And then we have Mexican Americans. Mexican Americans can be anything from someone who may have been here uh, for five years, speaks English as a second language, to someone who was here before my great uncle Sam Houston, before the Alamo, before Anglos were here. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily make sense to send the same message to all these people. So in, in order to actually engage with the Latino community, we are working within all of the Latino communities to make sure that each one of them individually have a voice and that we are, we are listening to their different needs. As you mentioned earlier, immigration is a very important issue for a lot of people. It is definitely not the only issue. And for a lot of people, it's not the top issue. Healthcare is at the top of most people's priorities when I talk to them because we see, we see disparities very strong ones across um, the, the spectrum in healthcare opportunities from the Latino community who needs Medicaid expansion the most to other ethnic communities. We see disparities in education that we talked about. We see disparities in employment. We see disparities in access for entrepreneurs to capital. So th these are the kind of things that I think that we need to address to make sure that across the board, Latinos and all of us who believe in a pluralistic democracy have the exact same opportunities to create our American dream. Great. We've covered a lot of ground. I'd like to close by giving you a chance to tell folks why you are so passionate about running for this post. You're doing it for the second time. You've been working really hard at it. What drives you and what would you like to see happen if you win this post? I'll tell you a story. You know, when I was in high school, we, there was a black history program. And I asked my teacher if we could go. And she said, no. When I said, why not? She said, because we're not black. All of us here are of European descent, except for you, Shri. What race exactly are you? And I looked back at her. I was 14 years old. And I said, I consider myself part of the human race. And I still think that's the right answer today. However, we have people in positions of power right now. And they've been there throughout our history, but it's getting worse right now. Like we said, saying that Latinos are rapists and drug dealers, or that a Latino can't be a fair judge, or or accusing Barack Obama of faking his birth certificate, our first African-American president. Uh, all of these things are symptoms of the same issue. It's a fundamental question that we have to decide in this election, what kind of society we are. Are we a great country despite our immigrants? Or are we a great country because of our immigrants? And I believe in, in the latter. People have been coming to this to the United States from all over the world for centuries. We don't have the largest population in the world. We don't have the largest landmass. We have the most diverse group of people, and that is our strength. 
It has always been our strength. And anybody who says that immigrants make our country worse don't know the history of our country. My father told me that I am just as American as anybody else, and no one can tell me different. That's why I'm so passionate about this. That's why even despite having served my country overseas in war zones like Iraq, I resigned in 2017 to come home because I believe that American democracy is the greatest democracy in the world, but we can only preserve it if we're willing to fight for it. And if people out there are willing to fight for it with us, I want you on our team. So please come and join us in this fight. You can go to our website at www.shree2020.com. Follow us on Facebook at Shree for Congress 2020. But we need you in this fight and we need it this year in 2020. We have been talking to Sri Kulkarni, who is running for the Texas 22nd Congressional District. Thank you for calling in. Thank you so much, Tony, for all the work that you do. And thank you to all your listeners out there. Please come back week after week because this program is so important. This is Pablo. I'm Chicano, vegan, but I'm still too young to vote, so I love listening to Latino politics and news to get informed about my culture and issues shaping the world I will eventually inherit. Now, you probably suspect that I don't get a lot of this information in my school. I'm not taught any of this, so shows like Latino politics and news on stations like KPFT are vital for me to educate myself. Please donate now by calling 713-526-5738 or visit www.kpft.org and donate online to support Latino politics and news. Tony Diaz. Ensure that the station is still here when I'm old enough to vote to have my own show. Viva KPFT. Welcome to Latino Politics and News. Today we are touching bases with a Latino representing the community in Dallas, Texas. Omar Narvaez was elected to the Dallas City Council in June of 2017 and represents District 6 for 80 years. His family has lived in that district in Ledbetter, La Loma, and Bachman Lake neighborhoods. He currently serves as chair of the Environment and Sustainability Committee, which was created by Mayor Eric Johnson in November of 2019. In addition to the Environment and Sustainability Committee, Councilmember Narvaez was also appointed to the following committees, Economic, Development, Government Performance, and Financial Management, Quality of Life, and Arts and Culture, and Judicial Nominations. He has a passion for community involvement and has served as President of the Stonewall Democrats of Dallas and Vice President of LULAC 4871. In 2013, he was awarded the first ever LULAC Orgullo Award. We wanted to take some time to talk to Omar about Latino representation in Dallas and how to empower the community, but we really wanted to focus on his response to Texas AG Ken Paxton's letter rebuking the judge who punished the nail salon owner in Dallas who violated stay-at-home laws. That's a powerful letter. Omar, welcome to Latino Politics and News. Say hi to your Hinta from Houston, and tell us how you're dealing with the pandemic. I'm so honored to be on your show and want to give a shout out to all my family that lives in Houston still. For the listeners, I was actually born and raised in Houston in Spring Branch and I went to Northbrook High School. I live in the city of Dallas now and I am uh, one of the council members now in the city of Dallas. That's thrilling, especially they got a lot of Hinta out here in, in H-Town as well. And of course... After we talk about the whole issue with Ken Paxton, we also need to touch bases on the fact that Dallas has a lot more Latino city council members than Houston does, but we must resist that right now. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what is going on then with the nail salon owner and what was your take on Ken Paxton, like we say, metiendo la cuchara. Some of your listeners may know, I know it went mini viral here in the city of Dallas and the Dallas-Fort Worth area as I wrote a, a letter in response to the indicted attorney general of the state of Texas for doing some ex parte communication with the judge, the district judge, Eric Moyer, here in the city, I mean, in Dallas County, 
basically the salon owner refused to follow the governor's orders of not opening up your businesses. And whether you agree with that as being right or wrong, that's your issue to deal with. But as far as I know is that I took an oath that I would defend and protect the constitution of the state of Texas and all of its laws. And by having the governor of Texas give an order, which is a legal order through an emergency declaration in response to COVID, this this woman decided that, you know, she was above the law and didn't have to abide by it and literally ripped up the judge's orders to cease and desist. And this was just wrong in so many ways. But guess whose responsibility it is to enforce these orders is the city of Dallas. We're responsible for doing this. And so we do what we're supposed to do. The county judge, elected judge Moyer, did what he was supposed to do. And then all of a sudden, the indicted attorney general decides to get into ex parte communication, which is illegal. And that is not something that, that he is supposed to be doing by basically telling the judge that he went too far, that he did too much, and he needed to let her go. Well, we all know now that the governor of Texas decided to amend his orders and basically told us that we just really don't have a way to, to enforce his own orders as a city government or even as a county government here at the municipal level. So I penned a letter and was, wanted to know where the outrage was because at the exact same time, there were two Latina women down in, in the city of Laredo that were jailed for having services out of their home, and they were jailed. I didn't see the outrage. I didn't see the letters. I didn't see armed militia showing up. I didn't see a GoFundMe account for those two Latina women. And I wanted to know why, what is the difference? And the only difference is, one, the color of their skin, but number two is their ability to have connections to folks in high places. And this person, you know, my understanding is, is part of the Republican Party, has, you know, lots of folks that were helping her get set up. And that's just, that's just wrong. That just because you don't have connections to the folks in power, that you, you get treated a different way than all the rest of us. And I didn't mean for this thing to go viral, but it was what had to be said. When we've got the indicted attorney general of the state of Texas saying, that um, this woman has been treated too harshly, too, too hard. And then but he doesn't pen a letter for these two Latina women. He doesn't pen a letter saying that how outrageous it is that folks that are trying, that are walking thousands of miles in order to protect and feed their children, coming to the United States, seeking asylum, which is completely legal in this nation, and we get them to the, to the border, and then we rip their babies out of their arms and put them in baby cages. Where is the outrage? Where is their letter? Where is the letter for the black and brown transgender women that are being murdered in our streets? Where is their letter? Where is the letter for folks that are trying to do what they're supposed to do and are being left inside of jails because they committed a misdemeanor B or a C and are being left inside of jails where we know COVID-19 is running rampant? Where is the outrage for them? Where is their letter? And I had it up to my ears with it. Well, those are some powerful sentiments. And yes, it did get a lot of attention because we heard about it here in Houston. I, I think there's so much to unpack in that. Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on if people are for or against businesses opening right now, only because that's clickbait. To me, what has been overlooked is what you brought up. Let's go back to these two Latinas who did go to jail and did not benefit from connections. What does that say about the arbitrary nature of the way some laws are enforced by some officials? Because that, to me, seems the real issue. And let's add to that the fact that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said he would pay the nail salon owners fine and he would serve the time. Mind you, he didn't say he would serve the time in jail. He said with uh, <laughs> at home, <laughs> which is also like, no, I, I believe if you're going to, you know, apples for apples, <laughs> if you're going to do the time, it has to be in the cell. But tell us more about how this reveals the unfair and arbitrary application of laws. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and to just to go off of what you said about the lieutenant governor, I mean, the lieutenant governor is the one who also earlier said that, you know, elders should um, 
be able to willing to sacrifice their lives in order to make the economy and, and things go forward because they already lived it. But yet he's the one who said, well, he'd serve time, but from the comfort of his own home, which I'm sure is a very, very nice home, which good for him. But, you know, that's not the same as being in jail like these two Latina women are. And you can, you just, it just screams, in my opinion, um, white supremacy. And that's what we, we've got to stop in the state of Texas. And, you know, that, that's not the Texas way. The Texas way is everybody gets a fair shot. We're all treated the same when it comes to our judicial system. But we also all have to be held accountable. And you can't hold one person accountable for doing the same thing, but the other, the other person gets a free pass. I love that you're bringing up a lot of these issues that I feel haven't been touched on enough in the media in general. So I'm so glad that you voiced it. I'm so glad that we talk about it, especially when there's a lot of hypocrisy that's being revealed. So, for example, the whole notion of someone using the phrase that they were breaking the law to feed their kids. And at the same time, you've got an anti-immigrant sentiment across the nation from the Republican Party and far right wing agents that are the only ones I've heard say that, well, we don't mind immigrants who follow the law and we don't mind immigrants that play by the rules, but they should play by the rules. And the irony here is that some of the same political representatives from the party that basically demands that everyone follow the rules is breaking the rules. But using that same phrase about feeding their kids, etc. What are your thoughts on that sort of irony and the rhetoric? You know, it is so ironic right now that, that they're using that. You know, I, I in my letter, I use the phrase and quote unquote, I said those people. And, you know, it's like that's what all the rest of us are always referred to as is those people you know, we are a nation of laws is what I've heard my entire life. We are, you know, a society that has to abide by the law, abide by the rules, stand up straighter, look taller. Don't you dare look a little funny because we're going to get you. Now we have this one person who's saying, you know, oh, yeah, follow the rules and the laws, except for me, because I've got to feed my kids or kid. And guess what? There are tens of thousands, millions that are in the same boat, and we're trying to do everything we can to help each other. And that's the Texas way. That's the way we do things in this state. And we don't sit there and form a small militia and bring people with big old giant AK-47s to open up a hair salon. I've gone two months without a proper professional haircut. I've pulled out the clippers in my in my bathroom, and I have been clipping the sides of my head on my own in the back as best I possibly can. And I haven't had the top cut in forever. Why? Because it's not an essential priority that I need to survive in um, in today's day and age. It's something that we want to do. And it, of course, it makes us feel good. And I want these folks to get back to work. And my understanding from some friends who have gone in and um, decided to you know, partake in getting their hair cut, good. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad they feel safe. But that's how we have to approach this. And you can't say one set of rules for one, one set of rules for the other. We already did that in this nation when we told black people and Latino people and Native Americans they have to sit um, in the back of the bus. My grandmother passed away about three years ago, and I remember growing up with her and talking about stories when I got to take my first ever Mexican-American histories class and her telling me about, you know, she was a migrant worker. She remembered a time where... One of the, the ranchers literally shot a Mexican kid because he stopped in to get some water out of the, like, it was like a little ditch or something, um, is where they were allowed to get their water from because it was so hot and he needed water. And they literally shot him dead in front of her eyes because it wasn't time to get that water. Those days are over, or I thought they, they were over. That is not our nation. That is not Texas. We get along. We work together. And this is the toughest time that we've had in a very, very long time. And we just have to make sure that we work together and we make sure that we abide by the rules as best as we can. You know, people are going to mess up and they're going to make mistakes. And the last place we want anybody to have to go is jail over this. This is, you know, let's follow the education and work together. We just got a little enemy that we can't see. We're figuring out how to fight it. You know, at the heart 
of some of these issues you're bringing up, it takes us back to the whole notion that elections matter because you're right. We don't know exactly which way to proceed. It will take leadership to get us through this. But right now, it seems that everybody's hearts and intentions are revealed. Their ethos, their ethics will be revealed. And I'm glad that you bring the sensibility to the table. It's fantastic that you get to lead in Dallas. Let's talk about that, just to emphasize that elections do matter. Tell folks about your ascent to this position and tell folks in Houston how many city council representatives you have. Because here, where Latinos are at least 45% of the population, there's only one Latino city council representative. So break it down for us. Well, I can tell you that we have a few more Latino uh, council members here in the city of Dallas. Our city after this 2020 census. So make sure you do your census if you're listening um, and uh, get counted. What... I can tell you is that um, I'm very honored and very proud of the fact that after the 2017 election of the Dallas City Council, um, there's 14 council members, one mayor, and we are now, um, I'm part of a history making five Latino elected officials on the Dallas City Council, the first time ever in our history. Um, we had never been more than three when I first got elected last term. Um, we were two, myself and our, mayor pro, our current mayor pro tem, and now we are five, and it's really exciting to see the diversity come to our council. Um, for the first time ever, our council is minority majority, so there are eight people of color on the council, and our mayor is African American, so there's nine of us on the 15-member council. So it's really exciting stuff to have that happen, and what's really more exciting is that Dallas is starting to really not, you don't have to live in a Latino drawn district to win in Dallas now. Um, I, I happen to represent a, a Latino drawn district, District 6, and our Mayor Pro Tem, um, Adam Adrano, represents a Latino drawn district. Um, for the first time ever, we have a coalition district, which is a, it's about 40% African American, 40% uh, Latino, um, and the rest is uh, Anglo and other. Um, for the first time, that district is being uh, elected a Latino, Jaime Resendez. So he's on the council with us now. It's his first term. And then we have an African-American drawn district, District 7, which elected, the, the, he's currently the youngest guy on the council, Adam Bazaldua. And he's a Latino representing a traditionally African-American district for the first time ever. And then we have Ms. Paula Blackman, who represents District 9. Um, the, <clears throat> she's the sole Latina on the, on the council at this time. And she represents what is a traditionally... Anglo district. So it's really exciting to see us from all over representing. So two of us from the, you know, central and western side of the city. I represent part of the northern part. And then we have somebody from the east, the southeast, and, um, and the south of the city representing. So we now um, have representation from the entire city of Dallas. And that's really exciting stuff to have, for it to be five of us, plus our um, three African American um, two brothers and sister that are on the council with us and working together, seeing our issues, seeing things through our lenses and our eyes has really made things um, shape up a little bit differently when we're talking about equity and we're talking about issues that are important to Latinos for the first time ever. The council is actually looking at us and listening and um, we're getting some some good stuff done. It's really exciting stuff. That's thrilling. And I got to look at my GPS to figure out if Dallas is just a few hundred miles away from Houston or a few decades. Okay, because we need to take the gauntlet you've thrown down, accept the challenge and step up and, and serve our communities here in this city, as well as cities across Texas and across the country, because you play a big role. Like, for example, of course, with Nuestra Palabra and Latino politics and news, we are big proponents of Mexican American studies, which you alluded to earlier, but also arts and culture. You serve on Dallas's Committee for Life and Arts and Culture. Tell us a little bit about that, where you are with that, and some of your goals. And of course, we've had David Lozano from Caramia Theater on the show as well. So we are in touch with our familia out there, as well as other parts of Texas. But give us your vision for the future. Yeah, so the exciting part is that last um, term I got to serve in the Quality Life Arts and Culture Committee 
And once again, I get to be on the Quality of Life Arts and Culture Committee for the City of Dallas uh, this term. Um, last term and this term, I was the uh, only Latino. And uh, obviously, again, this term, I'm the only Latino. It's a five-member committee. Um, but the exciting stuff is that um, over my term is I've really brought Latino arts and cultural issues to the forefront. Um, last term, I got started, and I got to finally finish it this term was um, to get some really old outstanding bond money um, to finally get spent and for the expansion of our Latino Cultural Center that we have here in the city of Dallas. So uh, that was approved unanimously earlier this year. And so hopefully about you know a year and a half from now, um, I'm going to invite you down or up to, to Dallas from Houston and want all of you all to come up and uh, be part of the ribbon cutting of the brand new first black box theater that will be owned and operated by the city of Dallas <clears throat> at the Latino Cultural Center. The other exciting news was um, right before then is that we, for the first time ever in our history, are awarded two Latino organizations to become principal organizations, and they'll both be at the Latino Cultural Center. So we've done that for African-American organizations, We've done it for a lot of Anglo organizations in arts and culture um, for different facilities, but this one is the first time ever for you know Latinos. And of course, I couldn't just do one; we had to you know go above and beyond, and we did two. So Teatro Dallas and Caramia Theater, which you had mentioned earlier, will be the new print or are they? They are now the principal, the two principal companies at the Latino Cultural Center, and so um, that means they got to put some skin in the game. You mentioned the Latino Cultural Center. It is beautiful. I've had the privilege of reading there for the launch of the anthology Echo in Texas, the anthology of Texas Mexican writers edited by Dagoberto Gilb. I was also there to talk about the textbook I had written, the Mexican Market Studies Toolkit. Again, con mucho cariño, we would be honored to accept your invitation to be at the ribbon cutting. And we'd, we'll take tons of people there and promote it as well. But that is so powerful to show what an impact you're having there on the city because those are major acts and they will have very real impacts in the community. So that is wonderful. To close us out, please fire us up. Someone's listening right now who's thinking about running or maybe they ran and lost. What would you say to them to get them fired up, to step up, and realize their potential. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. When I first ran for office, um, I was on the county school board first, and then um, that was through an appointment, and then um, through a, because of a casual vacancy, and then uh, I decided that I liked the seat, I enjoyed governing, and I would run for re-election, and um, I got re-elected with no opposition, which is, I tell everybody all the time, is the best way to run. Run with no opponent. Um, so that was nice. And then I decided to step up and run for city council because my um, community asked me to challenge the uh, incumbent at the time. <clears throat> and um, so I stepped up and I said, you know, let's do this. Um, what I will tell you is don't be afraid because I was scared. I was like, why me? Um, I'm not rich. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not, you know, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I, I would talk about all the things of why I couldn't, you know, I've got, you know, uh, a last name nobody can say or spell, you know, I've got, you know, all these things. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm an openly gay man, you know, you name it. I was telling myself, doubting myself. And then um, I remember talking to some of my um, folks that I really respect that are elected officials here in the county at the time, Sheriff Lupe Valdez, um, my current county commissioner, Elber Garcia, and um, a few others. And I remember asking them, how did you know? You know, um, why did you think you could do it? And they said, if not you, then who? That's what you've got to think. And you're smart. You know what you're doing. You're, you know, you, you care about the community. You know, if you want to do this, you've got to try it. And, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen if you lose? Um, is at least your voice was there. At least you pushed the agenda. At least the issues you cared about were being talked about. And and I've had many a friend run for office and lose, and, and I tell them, look what you left behind was that person who won took what you were talking about and, and is working on it, or they made it an issue that they were going to work on. But if you win, 
you know, obviously that's the greatest day, you know, it's fun. It's like, but then you have to get to work. And what I tell people is remember, you know, this works for me is remember who sent you there. The people sent you there. Your job is to work for them. And people, people, you know, they laugh because I'll go into my community meetings, my town halls or what have you. And I talk to people like, hey, boss, what's going on? I, I refer to my constituents as my bosses because they are. They voted for me to be there, and I'm there to do their work. It's not, I'm not a king, I'm not a dictator, I'm a representative. And I'm supposed to do their work, the people's work. And what I would tell you is, if, if you have the ganas, if you are sick and tired of the way things are being done, if you, if you want to know why, then, then, then run. You might not win, and that's okay. But guess what? You're going to ignite some people to get out to vote. And when we get Latinos out to vote, the trajectory changes, the conversation changes. I have a T-shirt. It's got a hashtag somebody gave me, but it says hashtag Latinos change the game. And I wear that shirt with pride because it's like we are changing the game. We are working about our issues. We are talking about the things that mean the most to us, our familias, our jobs, education, you know, what is happening to us? What do we need? And Rasa, I can tell you if, if you're, if, like I said before, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And Rasa, it's time to no longer be on the menu and to get to work. I've got a good friend down there in Harris County um, that is running for county commissioner. She's in the Democratic primary runoff. Her name is Diana Alexander Martinez. She is one kick-ass, amazing individual. I've known her since the first grade. And I can tell you that, you know, get out there if you live in that in that uh, in that district and vote for her in the Democratic runoff um, and then vote for her in November so she can get on that county commissioner's court. She's 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 an amazing Latina. She's smart. And um, that's how we get it started. Run for the school board races, run for the city council races, run for those, you know, um, uh, city council races and and. Get our voices on those tables, and maybe one day you're the next state representative, state senator. Maybe you're the next congressperson, and who knows? Maybe I'll be voting for you when you're the first Latino being elected to be the president of the United States. It's been a real pleasure to chat with Omar Narvaez, who is formerly from Spring Branch. We've actually had Diana Martinez Alexander on the radio show, who was also from Spring Branch. I don't know what they're doing in Spring Branch, but it's working. Thank you so much for all that you do, for calling in. You've got more familia now in Houston. We can't wait to work together. Wish you continued success. Gracias, Omar. This is Pablo. I'm Chicano, vegan, but I'm still too young to vote, so I love listening to Latino politics and news to get informed about my culture and issues shaping the world I will eventually inherit. Now, you probably suspect that I don't get a lot of this information at my school. I'm not taught any of this, so shows like Latino politics and news on stations like KPFT are vital for me to educate myself. Please donate now by calling 713-526-5738 or visit www.kpft.org and donate online to support Latino politics news with Tony Diaz. Ensure that the station is still here when I'm old enough to vote to have my own show. Viva KPFT. complex world filled with complicated instructions like do this turn here don't staple fold spindle tape or mutilate one way etc etc why not take a break from all of this not near a seashore or relaxing in a tropical paradise well the surf's up over at kpft.org so mouse on over to kpft.org and pledge and renew online it's easy uncomplicated and will give you that warm and fuzzy feeling of having done something good for yourself and your community. 
So wax that mouse, hang 10, and surf over to kpft.org and renew your membership and pledge online at kpft.org. Thank you for supporting KPFT Houston, Radio for Peace. Mahalo. When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door, when wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood, or an earthquake is destroying buildings, when a tornado is tearing through town, or a hurricane strikes, or is the best time perhaps today? During a disaster, you may not be able to